Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 122, Titans 2 for Part 2, Apocalypse Now. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this is the second of my two-parter featuring some of my favorite New Teen Titans stories. Last time around, Donovan Morgan Grant and I took a look at the Judas Contract. This time around, I'm looking at my all-time favorite intercompany crossover, which is the 1982 Uncanny X-Men New Teen Titans crossover. And I'm not alone for this one either. Coming along with me is the one, the only, the irredeemable Shag. It's a great conversation and you'll hear it right after this. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter, Batman, Doctor Fate, Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Adam, Mister Miracle, Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? I'm back. So, um, as part of my May Titans twofer, I wanted to take a look at what is really one of my favorite 
Titans-related comics. And I say Titans-related because it's not just a Titans comic. It is a crossover with the Uncanny X-Men that was published in 1982. I've had this in my possession for, oh, a number of years. And um, it's I can't believe it took me this long to get around to it. But I'm not alone. Um, along with me is somebody who's been on the show before. He is one half of the Fire and Water podcast team and one of the proprietors of the Fire and Water podcast network. Please welcome back to the show, Shag. Woo! Thanks for having me. It's the irredeemable Shag, by the way. Let's get it right. It's Mr. the irredeemable Shag. So, <laughs> thanks for having me, man. This is exciting. I, I, you kind of contacted me out of the blue to talk about mm-hmm. this. I don't know that you and I had ever talked about this specific comic before, but it holds like a pretty special place in my heart. So, this is really exciting. Cool. Yeah, I was there was I was in the middle of a conversation about something, and uh, yeah, and I thought like you know yeah you'd be really good to and I think or is, or me maybe I just wanted to honestly this is going to sound kind of silly like I just wanted to it's been a while since we actually did anything on the air i think it's been like yeah, it's been years, a couple yeah, of years it was a Christmas and um or Fe- festivus I should yeah say. And, and we were on a you know we did a few like you know zoom hangouts and stuff like that um back mm-hmm. when back when we all went into quarantine but uh yeah but it's been a, it's been a while doug th- I, I was thinking of doing this and i was like you know i thought of you so and it's kind of funny because you were telling me as we went on the air uh before we went on the air here that you were more of an x-men guy than a titans guy and me being a, a huge Titans fan, it'll be really cool to get that. Um, to get that, so I, it's almost like I planned that. <laughs> well, let's just say yes. you did. So yeah, the truth of it is, <laughs> to the, I, I, you and I started Titans at the exact same mm-hmm. time. We both started with the Titans yeah. hunt. Now you went backwards though and, and read everything yes. before. I I started with the Titans hunt and just went mm-hmm. forward all the way to. I don't know, six, eight months into the new 52. And I said, Oh, no more. <laughs> um, I did come back for rebirth and stuff like that for a while. But anyway, b- bottom line, I never, I, to this day, I still have not read the complete Wolfman Perez oh. Titans. So the classic Titans that everyone measures it against, I still haven't read them. I've read a few, but not a lot. So yeah, for me, but, but X-Men, uh, I started in 83 reading X-Men and did go all the way back to Giant Size X-Men number oh. one, uh, and move forward from there. So I, I stuck with X-Men. Oh, wow. Way, way into the nineties. Um, and so uh, this is totally in my X-Men field. So yeah, it's kind of a nice thing. I'm coming at one way. You're coming at it. Cause I am kind of wondering too, as we get further into this, how I view the X-Men and the Titans versus the way you view the X-Men and Titans mm. in this from both coming from our different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be really interesting. Yeah. I went, I went backwards to the Titans mainly because, um, you know, a few years prior to starting to read the Titans, I've been really into GI Joe and my friends and I were trying to collect as many back issues as we could find, um, collectively, you know, and, uh, and so when the Titans started, I started hunting through the back issue bins. And I've said this before back in like 1991, um, a lot of the Wolfman Paris stuff, um, except for like the marquee issues, like, you know, your, your first few appearances of Deathstroke, et cetera, and issue number one and whatever, they weren't very expensive in the back issue. Bins. I was mm-hmm. paying about a buck fifty, buck fifty two dollars for a back issue. So, you know, I pick one up every once in a while. Uh, the Baxter ones were a little hard to, harder to find sometimes, but, you know, um, but, you know, I eventually got the whole thing. The X-Men for me was, um, I started in the 90s. A friend of mine was really into the X-Men and uh, I would whenever I visit him I'd read some of his uh his comics and stuff like that. I think my first issues though were at the very tail end of Jim Lee's run on the 
adjectiveless X-Men and okay. Will sure. Sportaccio's art on Uncanny and the, just the art team switched within a couple of months of me starting to buy the comics. And then I stuck with them only for, it seems way longer because there were so many comics for me to buy. Like really, cause like, because <laughs> cause I, I started with just Uncanny and X-Men, but then Executioner song started. So I started buying X-Factor and X-Force and, and then I was buying Excalibur and um, I finished up probably in 93. It, it was the end of Fatal Attractions and that Blood Ties crossover with the Avengers. And that all oh, those beautiful foil. And yeah. And that and a, a combination of that and stuff ramping up at DC, like uh, Death and Return of Superman, Nightfall and then the, then the slow march to zero hour. Um, that was commanding more of my my limited money, so I decided, you know what, I hadn't really enjoyed the last couple of X-Men issues that much. I'm going to drop these and pick up, I think it was like, you know, Superman or something. <laughs> it, was, it was something over at DC that was that was starting to catch my eye again, so... And that's forget uh, these X-Men. I'm going to get sovereign. Seven. No, <laughs> I didn't go that far, but no, I, I was, um, you've always joked about a Batman phase. I think people at least in our, in our generation probably did have an X-Men phase at one point or another. Oh, that's fair. That's yeah. absolutely fair. Cause it yeah. was the biggest selling book in the, you know, it was the number one title or the, it was, or if it wasn't number one, it was top three for the better part of a decade. Well, there's a reason the X-Men and the Titans are teamed up in here. It's because they were the two hottest properties. Oh, yeah. No doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and I didn't, I didn't really never really came back to the X-Men, um, at all. Uh, bought a few issues here and there when, when something looked interesting. But for the most part, my interest has been in that 80s, 70s, 80s realm. And, um, I have the, essential volumes going from uh really from x-men number one but but for this this iteration of the x-men the all new all different and un- uncanny whatever you know <laughs> as the title evolves um starting with giant size which is volume one all the way to what is the end of inferno so so i've been and i've been reading through that so i'm actually and, and one of the reasons i i picked this issue just on a on a personal note was that i'm doing a read through of the teen titans and the x-men and when I decided to do this, I was right around where this issue fell. Um, I'm way ahead of there now in the Titans. The X-Men, I, I actually am slightly ahead because I, I haven't picked up one of the essentials in a couple of months. But so, so this was, this was going to be read anyway. And I thought, you know, I don't know if, you know, I haven't heard this. This doesn't get a ton of coverage. It's not like, you know, I'm sure that other people have covered it. I mean, I'm sure that there are very few topics I've ever covered on this show that nobody has ever covered. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but especially when it comes to comics, but at the same time, um, you know, this, it's not a lost issue, but it doesn't get a ton of play compared to, um, the number of times we've heard people talk about like Superman, Spider-Man or, or some of the more, tre- like the more like famous, like treasury side edition, size editions, things like that. Um, DC Marvel, DC versus Marvel from 96 is getting a lot of attention, uh, in various shows that I've watched, uh, li- watch or listen right. to, um, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, so I just thought I, I thought this would be really, really fun to cover because, um, you know, it's, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a landmark, um, in, in a sense in that, yeah, you're right. It was the two biggest properties that Marvel and DC had going back in 1982 when it was published. 
It was also the last Marvel DC crossover until 1994. Uh, this was really successful, but the next one they were going to publish was the infamously ill-fated original version of JLA Avengers. And it still depends on who you talk to who was responsible for that failing. Um, yeah. Because there were... Uh, yeah, I have to go back. I probably have them somewhere in comics from the time. Dick Giordano did a few meanwhile columns devoted directly to like why that imploded. And then Jim Shooter, well, Jim Shootered all over <laughs> about right, it, right, you know, yeah. so it's um, it's been well documented that there was just there were a lot of editorial differences. The person who probably was the most pissed off about it was George Perez because he had done several pages. Oh, um, yeah. And uh, and then that's. And they were gorgeous. Yeah, and that scuttled any chances after that, including a sequel to this book. So, um, but before I, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Um, we did talk a little bit about our histories with just the X-Men and the Titans in general, but let's talk about like how we got a hold of this book. So was this, this came out, I believe before your friends bullied you into liking comics, um, according <laughs> to your secret Wars story. Um, so how did you, how did you get a copy of this, uh, to begin with? So, uh, again, I started reading in 83, and X-Men was one of the first ones out of the gate that I got into. So I I did miss this uh, by mm -hmm. a year. So I collected for 83, collected for a few years. I actually got out of X-Men um, and most of Marvel for a short window around, I don't know, 87, 88. I was totally into DC at the time. I was over to Buddy's house. And he's like, oh, dude, you got to read this Fall of the Mutants, this thing with the X-Men. It's amazing. And I'm like, no, no. I, I treated it like the mafia. I'm like, no, no, I got out. You're not <laughs> pulling me back in. And he talked me into it. I read the issue and bam, I was back in the X-Men full bore. By that point, I had a job. So I was had some disposable income. So I started buying back issues like a maniac. And so this was part of my like around 1988 probably ish uh, sweep of buying every X Men back issue I could find, whether it was or a Ford mm -hmm. at that point, whether it was Uncanny or whether it was like you know if they were in a Marvel team up or uh, X Men and the Micronauts or X Men versus Obnoxio the Clown. If anyone I've that. read that, it's really weird. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that anyone but you yeah, and I, I found remember. it in the 50 anyway, cent so, but this, this would have been one of the ones that I got and I, I got the original now as I was telling Tom before we started recording I'm actually as we covered I'm covering it from um, the trade paperback that was collected mm -hmm. in one of them and we'll, again, we'll touch on that because the issue itself is in my garage under 49 long boxes and by the way I know I have 49 long boxes because my wife told me if I ever get to 50 she's throwing all of them away <laughs> So no matter how many comic books or boxes I own, I only own 49 long boxes. Don't make that mistake. Anyway, so yeah, I'm doing the trade version of this. Yeah, as am I, because actually the trade is where I first read this. Um, yeah, I like I said, I, I you know I collected comics for a little bit in 87, 80, 86, 87, but like I didn't really start for real in like 99 until 1991. So sometime around like 91 or so, I did see the individual issue in a comic store. Why I did not buy it, I cannot recall. It may have, I may not have had the money for it. That's the only, yeah, I, think, I don't think I just, from what I understand, if I'm, I'm trying to think back, I remember seeing it. It may have been too expensive for the money I had in my pocket. So that's the only reason that I can think of it. Could be. Um, but this, yeah, we, we are both reading it out of the same trade because um, 
and this was released in uh, it, the copyright is 91. I think it came around in like 91, early 92. Actually, here's the interesting mm. thing. Mine was printed in 2001. Oh. But it says it's the sixth oh, printing. Oh, I see. I have the first printing. It is called Crossover Classics, the Marvel DC Collection. It is uh, volume one, because they did a couple more volumes of this. Yeah. And um, it, uh, I spent, like, birthday money or something on this. I saw this at my LCS, and I was like, wow, cool, mine. Um, it reprints what was then the only four... At that point, the only four crossovers between uh, Marvel and DC that were superhero crossovers, because there was this random Wizard of Oz adaptation um, prior to everything mm-hmm. else, and mm-hmm. they mentioned that in the intro of the book. But the the four are the uh, the DC published Superman versus the Amazing Spider-Man, like the big Treasury one that is uh, by Ross Andrew, you know the and and. Um, you know the really really famous one. I've never heard. I've never heard of Treasures. Yeah, yeah. You guys don't have a show. <laughs> Jerry Conway wrote it. Um, yeah, Ooh. I know. Created some Firestorm character. I just you know. Oh wait, he's that guy I had on Justice League International just last week. Mm, oh yes. Okay. And for more information, uh, sorry, humble brag. <laughs> go listen to Justice League International to hear. Jerry Conway. Um, and then the uh, the second, they have the second Amazing Spider-Man Superman one. That's the one that was mar- published by Marvel with, that was written by Shooter with pencils by John Buscema and uh, inks by Joe Sinnott. Um, the gorgeously Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, be uh, his drawn name. Batman and the Incredible Hulk crossover, and then bringing up the rear is uh, this one, which I, like I said, I bought in this, and then um, for years did not see the comic um, anywhere. I, you know, I don't know why. You know, it was just um, it probably went back to the comic shop that I had that I had seen it. It was my it was my alternate comic shop, and it was gone. Uh, and then um, so I remember the day I bought this though because I was I was. Summer home from college, uh, or I might have been like 21, 22. Um, I'm sitting at home. I was going through my Titans collection. I was literally like three comics short of the entire run. Mm. Um, and I remember them very specifically. Uh, it was issue 49 of the Baxter series, issue 75, believe it or not. I had never owned that at that point. And then this one. And I was like, well, my LCS didn't have them. The Sunvet coin and stamp, which was my kind of secondary one because it was a little further down the down the road, um, they didn't have it either. So I went into the Yellow Pages and looked up comic book shops. And I'm like, why this? I'd had a car for three years now. Why I never did this before is beyond me. But I looked. And this, this is, is my hometown. hometown. I looked up on Long Island. So I I um I looked up comic book shops. And found ones that were within like a five to 10 mile radius or whatever, and just spent an afternoon like driving to two or three comic stores and found the books. Oh, yeah, and, and uh, so it was, and uh, and I got this. I I don't think I paid a lot of money for it. I do not have to move sixty comic boxes to to find this because it's in my. It's 49, 49 comic books. Never, never I do not, more than I do not have to shuffle through 49 <laughs> comic boxes because my, my first Titans box is like easily accessible. It's under, it's under my current reading box. Um, but I do, I do have a copy of this and I do actually have it signed by both of the Simonsons, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's so, awesome. So 
I got I got to ask you. So my original, one of the things that drove me nuts about that original printing, at least mine, was one of the pages was flipped wrong. Like it was printed out of order. Was that just mine or was everything? Like you know that? what? I meant to check on that and I, I didn't. It's possible. I know that um, – Oh, who was telling me? Because I was showing them the – I posted a picture of when I had signed it. Had it got it signed years ago, and I think it was – somebody had mentioned that I bet one of the pages falls out because I think that was another mm. problem with the printing and everything. It was um, It was like an almost like a very early Baxter book. Yeah, I remember yeah. it was thicker. Yeah. Was yeah, really and this was 82. So like this was um, – they were, they were experimenting with Baxter paper in regular comics here and there because um, – one of the printings of the first issue of G.I. Joe was on Baxter paper. I remember that very vividly. And then, of course, um, as you get into 83 and then 84, um, DC especially really does a big push with the Baxter paper through uh, the Omega Men, for instance, Camelot 3000. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah you, you snicker at the Omega Men. I do. But it was – I think it was their first Baxter direct market ongoing. You know, I know they had other they had direct market stuff like like I said, Camelot 3000 was like their big maxi series that was on Baxter paper. And then they did the Titans and the Legion and the Outsider, you know, et cetera. And they they were they, they eventually by the time the late 80s ended, they had that sort of new format, deluxe format, prestige format, regular format where it was like all different paper right, and stuff right. like that. Um, but yeah, crossover classics come out. I devoured this. I, I have read this. I read this over and over and over again. Um, it, I, it was not the first X-Men comic I read or story I read. It was probably the first one I owned though. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then I would eventually go on to buy, um, and I still have these printings of dark Phoenix and a very, very, very slim volume of days of future past that only printed the two issues. And, um, yeah, I, I did that. I saw on the stands and it was like five bucks and I was like, sure. Hmm. And then I ha- also have a like second or third printing of, a uh, of, uh, God loves man kills, which is what I, I bought that as well, hmm. uh, which I reviewed with Stella over on required reading a while ago, a year or two ago. Um, yeah, so that's how I, that's how I came about this. So for, I'm just going to add along those lines, you said that was the first mm-hmm. X-Men book you owned. For me, at that point in 98, when I got my copy, um, the only Titans I had probably read at that point, I can't validate this, but just in the, in my head thinking it through, I'd probably only been exposed to the Titans in mm. Crisis. Um, what my friends had told me on the school bus, cause they talked about the Judas contract, like as if it was legendary <laughs> and the PSA drug comics. Oh, with, uh, the, the protector, of, uh, protector, yeah. right? Yeah. Who I even even then I knew what he was and and, and I could even pick <laughs> up on that. But uh, yeah, so I, I hadn't read any of the other. Interesting. Titans at this point. Yeah, I think my first exposure to the Titans probably was Crisis as well because Crisis. Uh, long story short, I, I I inherited a bunch of comics from a neighbor who didn't want them anymore, and one of them was Crisis Number Twelve, and like read the cover off that thing, and then was like determined to get the rest of the story. So, um, and a lot of it was like easily identifiable characters because I'd grown up watching super friends and the superpowers and you know, like it, all that stuff. So exactly. Um, which kind of segues into how I knew who dark side was, who is the villain of this story. Who's not a Titans villain, but um, we'll get to that. Um, just some, <laughs> some basics on this. This was on sale August 10th, 1982 
Um, and so I've got a few, we've got a few uh, sources for some of the background stuff with this. Um, they, well, I, I was going to jump in mm -hmm. here. This is where I, uh, in our notes, I, I bogarted yeah. this section here. So, uh, as far as when that was on the shelves, as you mentioned the date there, that is the same month that new Teen Titans number 25 was on the shelf and new Titans annual mm -hmm. number one, um, which places it in the Blackfire story and the Zol story. And I know you're going to talk about the con where it fits yeah. in continuity, but this is just what was on the shelves at the time. Because I think it's interesting, both books, because, I mean, New Teen Titans at this point is two mm -hmm. years out, and it's just massive. It is massive. And it's, you know, he's probably already building towards the Judas contract in his mind at this point, I would think, because that's what? Uh, he's a, uh, about, he's about to start because Terra, Terra makes her first appearance right. in issue 26. Yeah, so he's yes. already planning that out. So, and as far as X Men goes, so X Men uh, one sixty three was on the shelf, which was like the Brood story, Wolverine number four. So their first miniseries mm -hmm. had already come out, and they were only one month away from the New Mutants graphic mm -hmm. novel. So X Men was primed to explode with miniseries and a secondary monthly series. I mean, it was just both of these books were just running full steam and at full popularity and peak uh, profitability. Yeah, yeah, they were they were absolutely huge, and it made. I mean, just total sense that this so this wasn't like some sort of pet project, obscure thing that somebody thought to pull together or something like, you know, this was we've got our two biggest, biggest titles. Um, and uh, it was Marvel's turn to do this because uh, the DC had done the Hulk and uh, and Batman. And uh, from what and our sources for this are, you know, Mike's Amazing World, of course, we pulled um, I pulled some of this um, from the official Teen Titans Index issue three. So these were this and you may or may not be familiar with these um, a, 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 a company that was essentially Eclipse Comics, but they referred to themselves as independent comics group put out like index series of um, various DC titles back in the mid 80s. I've got you the, get the uh, crisis, crisis one. Okay, yeah. so the same company, same same format, everything. They did a Teen Titans index that takes you from issue Brave and the Bold number fifty four all the way up until about I think the Crisis crossover issues of uh of the of the Baxter series. So this is at the very tail end of um issue number three, and uh, um so I'm gonna I I pulled some information from there. I pulled the synopsis from there, and the other thing is that there's an intro by Chris Claremont in the crossover uh, classics trade uh you know back in the day when they used to put introduction and text pieces into trades like this it was you know and and, and then i also have some inf some of this information from glenn cadigan's the titans companion volume one by tomorrow's publishing um which uh in my other titans episode this month um i was talking to donovan morgan grant about um the judas contract by the way and uh we were I was referencing that too. So apparently, you know, Claremont, like Louise Simonson was the editor of uh, the X-Men at the time, or Louise Jones, as she was, she was not married to Walt Simonson yet. Um, so Louis, uh, Louise Jones was the editor and she, they essentially got the idea from, you know, whomever was like, we're going to team these two teams up. Um, and Claremont almost like it, it came out of this scene. One of one of the more, um, uh, famous splash pages in this book of 
Dark Phoenix appearing before Darkseid, and she's saying, who summons Dark Phoenix? And he says, I, Darkseid. And that was, like, what he built the entire issue around. Like, he had that before he had anything else of what he was going to do with these two teams. And the story goes is that he was explaining this to Louise Simonson, and Walt Simonson happened to be with an earshot, and he just kind of butted in and was like... So, so that's how Walt Simonson got on the book, because um, Simonson was not a regular X Men artist. He'd done a he'd done like a fill in, or he was about to do a fill in or something for for Paul Smith at one point. But at the point when this being was created, this was being created. You were toward the end of the second Dave Cockrum run as penciler, and the beginning of Paul Smith's run as penciler. Um, you know, this comes out I think like smack like right at the beginning of Paul Smith's run, and I love Paul. Smith's X-Men, by the way, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And it's a shame he, uh, he I think he, he left the book due to deadline issues and things like that. But it's a shame because um, it was just some absolutely gorgeous artwork uh, in that period. Um, so one one mm-hmm. small correction. Uh, Louis, Wheezy and uh, Walt were oh, actually okay. married oh, they were. at this point. I, I, and the only reason that matters is because then Claremont ends up going over to their house uh, for a couple of nights in a row where they plot out the whole story. So that's oh, okay. why I, I okay. Cause she, she was still going by Jones at the time. So I guess they think I just made that assumption because she was very, uh, she was very yeah. sweet when she signed it. Cause she asked me if, she, if, if I want, if she wanted me to sign it as Louise Jones. And I said, no, you could slide. Really? I said, you could oh. sign it as, as Louise Simonson. Yeah, she is, she is a delight. And anytime I have something I can have her sign, I will bring it to uh, when, when they're at the Baltimore Comic Con, because it's just so great to talk to her. Um, I, I waited like in line for an hour to meet them, and it, it was all worth it just yeah. to talk to her. I mean, he was great. He was fine, but she was yeah. wonderful. She they was were um, – the year before you guys were there, um, I was there with, with Brett, and Brett was dressed as Captain America – but he he could oh, wow. he was it was uh, but he the mask didn't fit so he was just walking around like Captain America with his mask off kind of like Chris Evans does half the time anyway and uh, right. I have this great picture he's like they wanted a picture with him so he um th- him between the the two of them it was really uh it was really um fun so uh yeah so they they basically put this whole thing together um Deathstroke is in there because they needed a Titans villain. <laughs> so they, they they were like yeah you probably want to put put a Titans villain in there and they uh and and they did that but yeah from from what I understand um you know they were they had like you said they hashed it out in a big plotting session um they had to go through the usual bureaucratic channels between um Shooter at Marvel and then uh, both uh, Marvel men Len Wein who was editing the Titans at the time and then probably Dick Giordano or um, Jeanette Kahn over at DC. Um, but apparently it was a very, very smooth process and it went really, really well. And um, Claremont was not a regular reader of the, or not a regular fan of like the Titans of the time. He said, uh, according to the interview in the Titans companion, he said he read just about as much as anybody else was because it was such a hot selling title, but he did, you know, once he got the assignment did just, you know, devour enough to really try to get the voices down. That's something we'll, we'll discuss in our, uh, in our analysis of the comic. But yeah, so it was just, it was it, everything I've read from this is just like, it was a joy to work on. And like Simon said, has said, he's like really, really proud of, of the work he did on it. Um, and I 
can believe that because it's a gorgeous book. Um, oh my gosh, so <laughs> um, so continuity wise, yeah, you mentioned it. It was uh, you mentioned when it came out. Um, so the Titans is easy to pinpoint where this takes place. And if you are if you are trying to do a read through of the New Teen Titans and you want to slot this in, it's it's going to sound silly, but like you said, this came out around the time of issue twenty five and issue number uh, annual number one of the Titans, which was the first uh, Tamaran storyline, which was basically Titans in space. At the beginning of issue twenty six, they return from space. And then, um, then, uh, like, is there like weeks go by and then the runaways, the two part runaways story, which is an outstanding story starts. This literally slots in right between those two, those two storylines. According to, um, the Titans index, uh, it follows page seven of the new Teen Titans number 26, uh, Oh my lord! That's yeah, well, specific. if you if you read issue twenty six, you can totally tell where it happens because they get home. Like the issue starts with the issue starts with a little bit of the runaway thing, with the little prologue of all these kids running away from home. But then with the Titans, it starts with them flying back to New York from space. Um, Robin and Starfire are now dating, and then um, they land in Titans Tower, and uh, and then it's like you know, oh, we're great. It's we're great. Sorry. Oh, it's great to be home. And then it's like, okay, a few weeks go by, and then we get into the main part of that issue's story. So it's it's that it's that section where you're like, oh, this is where you could slot in the 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 tight the the X Men crossover if you're being a nerd like I am. <laughs> according to this, now this is really this is what I was trying to figure out. So according to the index, they say it's just before that brood story, and that brood, the brood world world story. Um, Sometime after uh, in, in the X Men, sometime after number one fifty three, which does make sense because like from one fifty four all the way to like one sixty six, one sixty seven, they're like in and out of space with the Star Jammers and the Brood, and, like all that. It's it's a long period, from what I remember. But the thing that kind of throws me off is that while Lockheed the Dragon had sort of appeared in like a this little fairy tale Kitty was telling in issue one fifty three, he doesn't make. Oh, don't, it's it's not just like sorta, of. dude. Kitty's fairy tale was massively yeah. So at that, point. that is probably why they slotted Lockheed in here because Lockheed doesn't make an actual appearance in the title until um, one sixty six, which was not on the stands yet. So right, yeah. So because they're absolutely because they even reference it because Colossus even says something about oh, Changeling's taken the form of Lockheed, yeah. the imaginary dragon that, you know, uh, Kitty and I talk yeah. about. So, yeah, they're clearly referencing Kitty's character. Yeah, so it has yeah. to take place after 153, and so that's why I was saying it, it probably between 153 and 154 then, because um, therefore they're not in space and all that and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so either way, you just have to know one of two things. It's before the appearance of Madeline Pryor, and Storm doesn't have the Mohawk yet. That's that's your the, and, and Wolverine's not. And it's before the Wolverine wedding issue, which is right around when Storm gets the Mohawk. So it's it's before that particular point, um, you know. Or you come into it like I did and not know mm. any of this, and they're pretty darn iconic versions of the character. That is true. This was my and like I said, this was um, to me, this is what the uncanny X Men are right like mm -hmm. this is the team even though they'd had a lot of iterations there's a point in the mid in the late 80s where it's like 
Rogue and Psylocke and Dazzler. <laughs> like it's just like Storm is Storm always seems to be there, but like, you know, and Wolverine does too, but like, you know, X Factor's gone already going on, so like, you know, Cyclops has been gone for a while. But no, this is this is the team that in the same way that this is the classic new Teen Titans team. You know, this yep. is Yeah. They're very very iconic versions yeah. of the teams. So we're, we're, even if you don't know any of this. Yeah, and, and this is this is really a pivotal point for the Titans because like you said, it's it's selling huge, but Terra makes her first appearance in issue twenty six, and that that like that's the huge shakeup of the team. That when they come out of it, you know she's dead, um, and you have uh, you know Nightwing, and you have uh, Kid Flash is gone, and then you have Jericho, you know, which is a, a, so a slightly, and then Raven's like one foot out the door because the Trigon storyline's coming up. So there's a lot of shakeup that really destabilizes the team. Um, very, very quickly starting, uh, with the next few issues of this. So it's, it's a really, yeah, you're getting, you're getting this really good snapshot of both these teams in their iconic forms. Um, anything else I'm trying to think. So, like I said, um, we, uh, they were planning a sequel according to Wolfman in the letter columns of the new teen Titans back in the day. Uh, this would have been a Wolfman per Perez joint. Um, it, they would have been fighting brother blood and the hellfire club. That's all that was ever planned. Nothing was ever written. Nothing was ever penciled. Nothing was even plotted. They just knew that those were the characters they wanted to use. But then JLA Avengers imploded and they just scuttled any future crossovers until um, Batman Punisher Lake of Fire would be the next. <laughs> the yes. much beloved Batman Punisher <laughs> Lake of Fire, which sounds like a Steven Seagal movie or something. But, you know, there you go. Ugh. Well, the only other thing I want to mention is just that you mentioned Mike's Amazing World of mm-hmm. Comics. Stuff like that. If you're if you're looking for this issue by its official yes. title, it's really freaking long. The official title is Marvel and DC present featuring the Uncanny X Men and the New Teen Titans. That is the long freaking name. Isn't yeah, that? It's insane. Yeah. So, um, it is. I am going to give you guys the vitals, and I'm gonna use. I'm gonna use the synopsis from the from the Titans Index, um, because it's pretty, it's pretty succinct, and it won't take a ton of time. But credits on this are. Chris Claremont, writer, Walt Simonson, penciler, Terry Austin, inker, Tom Orzachowski, letterer, Glynis Ween, and Rick Taylor, colorist, Louise Jones, Simonson, editor, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief, Len Ween, consulting editor, the new X-Men created by Len Ween and Dave Cockrum, the new Teen Titans created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, cover price, two dollars. Two dollars in 1982. Shag, what was the price of a comic in 82? 60 cents. Uh, we weren't at 75 yet, if right? That, if that uh, might have been. Maybe, 50 yeah, cents. yeah. We weren't at 75 yet. That would be like what 83, 84. So yeah, I don't honestly yeah. remember anymore. I'm this so is freaking a, old. It is a big. <laughs> it, it is a high quality paper, oversized comic. Um, honestly, worth worth your eight quarters. Um. You know, you would have you would have conked out on the second level of Pac-Man anyway. So um, your, your parents would probably be like, "What? you got to do a four extra chores yeah, in order to get exactly to pay exactly go plow the back 40 kid. Um, so the cover is by Simonson. It is a wraparound on the left hand side. It shows dark side looking at us menacingly as dark side does. Um, and on the right hand side, we see Phoenix in this sort of like. 
dancer about to do evil pose with the feet with with the, we see dark phoenix sorry with the phoenix bird rising up behind her um and then the titans and the x-men are running at us with uh robin and cyclops taking up the uh, the front space on the cover and something that would have not happened five especially 10 years later if this was published wolverine is on the left hand side of the cover back behind changeling and cyborg which means by the way when he says left hand oh, side what it, it really it, the cover the back cover really i'm sorry it's he's on the back uh, cover yes yeah, so i'm looking yeah. at it. it it's it's a double page spread of the, the trade yeah the back cover wolverine's in the back right. cover behind changeling and cyborg totally would not have happened in 1992 <laughs> That is hilarious. Now, I do notice that they were very careful, though, to make sure of the main heroes that there's an even spread on the front cover. You've got three X-Men and three mm. new Teen Titans, um, which it was obviously on purpose. But, yeah, I, I didn't even think about the fact how popular Wolverine is if he's yeah. stuck in the back. I mean, at this point, he's got his own miniseries. He's already a big enough star to have his own miniseries. So yeah, that is very yeah. Um, I, I totally understand, though, why Robin – he gets as much prominence as he does on the front cover because, you know, oh, sure. Super Friends is still a going concern. It's Robin. I mean, that's that's an iconic costume already. So people are going to notice that. Um, and the the Dark Phoenix thing on the front cover, beautiful image, but also like this is what, two years removed from the Dark Phoenix saga. So um, anybody who was a fan of this at the time probably would have been like, oh, wow. You know that that was that was catnip to X Men fans. I can imagine. At Dark Phoenix was always hanging over the heads of these mm -hmm. characters. I mean, you, we mentioned Kitty's yeah. Fairy Tale, all about Phoenix. You know, there's another story uh, where Phoenix came back. I mean, it's just the Phoenix thing just kept being dangled like a it was like the death of Superman. It just always had to get mentioned yeah. every few months. It just wasn't going to yeah. go away. All right. all right, so here's our synopsis, courtesy of the official Teen Titans Index. The image of their late teammate, Phoenix, appears in dreams to the X-Men and to Raven of the new Teen Titans, seeming to warn of a coming catastrophe. At the same time, Robin encounters the Terminator working in partnership with one of Darkseid's parademons. When Starfire reveals the history of Dark Phoenix to her comrades, the Titans investigate the connection between Phoenix and the X-Men. They are mistaken for the mutant heroes by attacking parademons and captured, along with Professor X, by Darkseid, the demonic lord of Apocalypse. Meanwhile, the Terminator, sent by Darkseid to gather Phoenix's residual energies from locales where she had expended a great deal of power, is able to defeat and capture the real X-Men. Drawing on their memories of their deceased partner in peril, Darkseid is able to use the gathered em energies to bring Dark Phoenix back to life, after which he intends to use her power to transform Earth into a second Apocalypse. Freed of their bonds with the evil god's departure, the Teen Titans and the X-Men meet for the first time and discover the abandoned Mobius chair of Metron of the New Gods, which they use to travel back to New York to fight a return match against the Terminator. They are then attacked in turn by Darkseid and Dark Phoenix, and in the ensuing battle, Raven and Professor X psychically we weaken the Phoenix entity so that she-slash-it is forced to possess the body of Cyclops to survive. Reunion with her former lover turns Phoenix's memory of her life as Jean Grey, and she turns on Darkseid in revenge for his having reawakened her from her death. In a mammoth explosion, both Darkseid and Dark Phoenix vanish, and Metron regains the Mobius chair. 
So that's it's a very succinct um, recap, but we'll, we'll probably talk about like, you know, different pages and different panels and stuff like that. Um, I, I could I mean, it, I always like whenever Stella and I do this on on required reading, we asked, did you like it? But we've been gushing about this already. So it's not really something that we have to really talk about. Yeah, there's no, there's no, yeah. There's no surprise. But like so like but, but we can get right into talk about the writing of the art. I mean, the, the art in this is gorgeous. It's Simon. This is one of the first times I'd seen Walt Simonson's art. Um, I've gone on to read his Thor run, which was just out freaking standing, um, and uh, and some of his X Factor stuff and stuff like that. Um, so, my first exposure to Simon. Oh, Star Wars. oh wow, yeah, I've gone, I've gone and read back. That's my, that's my favorite era. That Star Wars. I've since gone and back mm-hmm. and read that. Um, you know, I didn't come into Star Wars comics until around the time Jedi came out. So, um, I was, I was a little late. Uh, the title of this, by the way, is Apocalypse Now, but it's Apocalypse, A-P-O-K-O-L-I-P-S, The Planet, um, which is just it, – it's interesting to me, and we'll, we'll get to that. But um, but as far as the, the writing of this is concerned, as far as the um, – and overall, we really, really enjoy it. Um, I don't know, like what – like I always come back to – some of the more action-packed moments, like the 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 famous scene that Claremont built the entire thing around that gorgeous pat, splash page of who summons Dark Phoenix. I do Dark Side. Oh, that's so. Um, and impressive. then the other one that I always come back to, believe it or not, is it's this. It's one of the opening scenes of the one of the first scenes is when Raven has the dream of Phoenix, and it's this really violent mm-hmm. dream. And then um, Corey, who apparently like just kind of took the bed sheet with her when she jumped out of bed. Uh, it looks like she's wearing Correct. the sheets. Well, she, uh, think about it. She's yeah. only sleeping nude. So, yeah, she's absolutely just wearing the sheet because Simon yeah. needed to cover so, it up. It's this great little scene, um, and it would totally make sense that Corey would be the one to know anything about Dark Phoenix, um, you know, or at least the the cosmic level of, of Dark Phoenix because of the, uh, you know, the, the cosmic connection there and the, the outer space connection she has. So she Raven's telling them, telling her about the dream and Gar comes in wearing his pajamas with the hearts all over them and says, well, why don't you tell me this creature? I can change, you know, I can, st-, he starts to change based on her description. And the moment he becomes the Phoenix, Corey flies right at him and puts her hands on his throat. And it's a really it's it's like you know I was so pissed like she was triggered by this and she went right at him and it was a really it, it's just one of those scenes I will never forget because it was just it I thought it was a really good character moment from her um, and for once we didn't have Robin telling her to calm down which he seemed yeah. to do a lot in the Wolfman Paris issues. Well, for me, actually, one of my favorite art pieces in here is actually the page before and it's tied to the scene though it is is raven's dream where you see raven's soul self battling the fire version of the phoenix and i thought from a writing perspective that was very clever for uh claremont to pick up on the idea of the soul self bird with the the phoenix bird and having that that kind of connectivity there yeah yeah and i love the and i want to say it's i don't know if it's simonson or or tom orzachowski the lettering of the sound effects across a lot of the panels, the mm. scree that is going across. That that's um that's yeah, yeah. for that. He he he, lo- he loves to do uh that. Yeah. The sound it, it, it's just I mean it, it it works so so well. But like even before that, there's this whole little sequence of Darkseid trying to steal dreams 
or he's trying to steal their thoughts. He's trying to get some sort of residual psychic energy out of all the X-Men in the X-Mansion. And we've got this picture, this this sequence of panels up at the top of a of a page. Um, there's no page numbers for the actual issue. It's like 236. It's a couple it's a couple pages before. It's like two pages before the Raven Dream. They're all dreaming, and Kitty wakes up and she sees Darkseid, and it's just this like Pennywise the Clown looking smile panel that is just like mm. jarring. You're just like. And that's where she starts screaming, and it's just so, like all these little touches. Like even before the major, major action, Simonson is giving us both like epic, grand scale action because he's got this Source Wall stuff and the new gods and Metron and Darkseid. The Source Wall stuff is a yeah. I mean, just amazing. The the scope of it, the way it fills the page, the yeah. detailed uh, creatures, the, the alien beings on the faces. I mean, just wow. Those pages are all stunning. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, and, and the thing that's um, that's really important too, and I would I would imagine is um, to note is that Simonson is following a couple of really really tough acts as far as artwork on both of these books. You know, like I said, I, I really love Paul Smith. But the but the high watermark at this point was John Byrne and Terry Austin, sure. and um, those the art through those is just absolutely gorgeous. And that run is like you know that's still one of the most famous talked about X Men runs there was. And over in DC you have George Perez who is doing this level of detail you know every month in and out and stuff like that. So so he. He steps up to the plate in a huge, huge way um, because he does what both Byrne and Perez could do. He could do the big epic action pieces, but he could do the smaller moments, too. And that's not something that every artist who can do big action scenes is necessarily capable of doing. So so I, I just want to talk a little bit about Simonson. First of all, Simonson is, is amazing. I mean, there, we can throw all these acolytes that we want at him, but you guys at home already know the guy's amazing. Well, this is some real peak Simonson stuff here. It's absolutely mm-hmm. gorgeous. I mean, for me, I feel like the, and maybe it's the effect of Terry Austin. I'm not sure, but it seems to me all the X-Men are dead on. Like the likenesses of the X-Men are mm-hmm. perfect throughout this whole thing. The Titans, uh, they're, they're exceptional. They're, let me start by saying that they're very, very good. They're exceptional. However, they're a little bit off for me. There's something I noticed he did uh, with some of the women, uh, specifically women, not girls, because he doesn't do this with Kitty. He does this with the the adult women like Starfire, Donna Troy, stuff like that. He does something uh, with their lower halves. He, he gives them very wide hips, very mm. wide legs, things like that. And it's stylistic. It doesn't look bad. It doesn't look awful. Uh, it actually makes them look a little more like realistic people, to be honest. But it, I noticed he does that specifically with the older women, but not the younger women, which I thought was sort of interesting. But it also, unfortunately, makes them look a little bit off model when he does that, too. Especially with Starfire. And yeah, Wonder, Wonder Girl. Yeah. Wonder Girl does look. There are a number of panels where Wonder Girl looks looks like the Donna Troy that we're used to seeing. Um, but with Starfire, there there's a little bit of um, her no, like her. There are some panels where her nose is a little bit off. Like there's little. Um, and, and Perez used to draw her a little more uh, curvy, but a little slimmer than that. So, yeah, you're, you're right. His raven is on point, though. I will, I will mm-hmm. give you that. His raven is on point. She's we're, we're not to the part of the point in this book's title where she is looking like really, really severe. Um, you see, you haven't. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't know. Have you read the beginning of the Baxter series? 
Okay, so no. so this I'm is all right, you, so this, this is a great little bit, and they did this because of the way George Perez's art had evolved in four years. But there's a, there's the part where like the very first storyline of the Baxter series is the return and ultimate defeat of Trigon, and it is, and and, 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 and it and, was not right, <laughs> up until that point. Yes, oh, all right, and point, he was sure. dead for a long time after that. So this is the return of Trigon, which they had been teasing and building to for really, really long time. So this storyline is like it's as far into horror as the as the book really got. It's it's this whole nightmare dimension thing. Trigon's like five, several stories tall. He takes over the Earth. The only ones left to save it are the Titans. It's it's a really really good story. In the first issue, Raven is like she's she's like one false move away from like succumbing to her father. It's like it's gonna happen, and they're trying to figure out how to help her. And they they say that they've noticed that she has been changing, and they're like, and so what they have is they have several like um what are they called stats of different panels from different issues because when Perez started to draw her way back in like the very beginning her features were a lot softer and the, and it was just, and they said that it was inadvertent. He, he hadn't been really doing it on purpose, but they noticed the way he had been drawing her as of late where she had much more ang like much more pronounced cheekbones, like almost like Angelina Jolie and Maleficent sort of like, you know, bone structure. And mm -hmm. so they, they did this like progression of like, you know, and here is her recently. And it's like, look, it, so it's like almost like the evils overtaking her and it's starting to show her face. And they did it because Paris's style had matured. And I was like, that's a really cool little, little bit there. But so we're about right. halfway through that. So she looks like a, a, she looks like an older teenager with a little bit soft features, but she still has that sort of, um, the long hair and the, and the very kind of brooding look about her. I thought, I thought, I thought he drew Raven really well. Robin and Cyborg though, he gets, he gets, well, he, his death stroke is gorgeous. I was going to say his death stroke and his dark uh -huh. side are freaking amazing like i i've seen uh, this is probably heresy but I, I might like this deathstroke better than perez i'm not sure he just mm. looks so good i am a sucker for simonson though he does but you know what though um i, I can see how natural deathstroke was to him because of his run on that manhunter comic from the 70s mm. right with probably. archie goodwin yeah and yeah. if you look at mm -hmm. does that mark shaw that character no it's um uh it's uh, oh gosh i'm i'm blanking um no mark shows the, the wait no wait but it, the, oh, the uniform it the, the, the costume is not that dissimilar though very swashbuckling looking you know there's no there you know there's no full face mask on manhunter but it's very like you know um so so i i can see how he would adapt to deathstroke really really well um Although I kind of want like a, I, had this been you know I, I would have kind of wanted a pre-Judas contract four issue Deathstroke series drawn by Walt Simonson, <laughs> right? It's Paul, Paul Kirk. Kirk that's who it was. Yeah, because he's got this yeah. like when they introduce him, he's like sipping champagne in in the dark side lair, and yeah. then one of the Ravik the Ravager, who is who's basically the red shirt parademon that gets 
Oh, yeah. we're going to be talking um, about him. He he uh, he just he breaks the um, to keep Deathstroke on his toes. He breaks the champagne glass, and Deathstroke just like there's this great panel of him just flipping out of his chair, throwing like throwing stars at the guy, and uh, it's just again, it's it's Simonson doing action in a way that is just like really really vivid. So I want we we started mm-hmm. this category uh, talking about art yeah. and writing. But we we went pretty fast past writing. So I got to ask you, as a as a Titans fan and and someone who's read some X Men, and as I'm an X Men fan who's read some Titans, did this read like a Titans story to you? Because it's written by I mean it, we should say it's written yeah. by Claremont, who's the X Men writer. So did it read like a Titans? Story? Um, it read. It felt like more of an X Men story because of the Dark Phoenix centric focus. And because she was not teaming up with anybody who was an actual Titans villain, you know. Well, and I don't even necessarily mean the plot. I just I guess I mean more like the writing itself, the way Claremont (sighs) has so much on the exposition and and the dialogue boxes. And there's so much talking and everything. And the reason I ask is because, like, for me, this was like putting on a really comfortable sweater Mm -hmm. or a really comfortable pair of socks, because this is like this is this is uh, this is mac and cheese (laughs) for me, man. This is great. It's it's my it's Claremont doing X-Men. But I was just curious as a Titans reader, if it was again, I'm not necessarily talking about the plot, but just the style of writing was it. Was it clunky for Titans? Or it, it might have. I, you know, if I'm trying to think back to 1980, 1992 or whenever I first read this, it might have felt clunky at the time because the the Wolfman, well, you know, Wolfman did write his fair share of exposition and things like that. It had a little bit more of a natural flow to it. Um, you know, it, it almost felt conversational in some cases. In some cases, he did. You could tell he spent time at Marvel because some of his narration boxes had that old Marvel hyperbole sort of, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, by this point, I'm used to Claremont's, right? Claremont, as good as he is as a writer, the man overwrites, you know, um, he will, like oh, <laughs> he dear. will fill a page. <laughs> he will fill a word balloon. Um, I felt the characterization was pretty on point. Um, you know, there was, he was definitely grabbing at a couple of things or, or throwing a couple of things in. He had Gar Logan down really, uh, correct. Um, I thought that, um, you know, I thought his Corey, he had the warrior side of Corey and, and there were a couple of really fun, um, little moments about the whole, like where she kisses Colossus, because right. after he's thinking like Lockheed was ours, I'm getting jealous that he says to himself like, "Oh, you're being a fool," and he says it in Russian. She's like a new language I could learn, and she just basically like you know tackle kisses him, and um and Robin has to explain to uh, Professor X or whoever that's you know she absorbs languages through physical contact, <laughs> and Nightcrawler's like, "Eh, sprechen Sie Deutsch." It's like. <laughs> That's a great bit, which is which from what I understand of Nightcrawler, it's a very like on point thing. Um, Yeah, he he got he got the characters down pretty well. I could tell that he'd read enough to really understand their voices. And he's giving us a very mature, determined Dick Grayson. That is the Dick Grayson that we were going to be seeing even more so in um, the Titans because this is the year or two where he starts to become really, really like, I mean, he quits being Robin about two years later, but this becomes that's the, the march toward not being Robin anymore really does begin around this time. And he's, he's becoming 
even in some cases, if we get into a storyline that introduces Adrian Chase as the vigilante, um, he's like skirting the law. He's like breaking and entering into a mobster's house. He's not becoming like, not like Batman after uh, death in the family violent, but he's definitely becoming like less of the uh, goody, goody boy wonder that we were used to. And, and so, and then he's getting tired of Batman's Batman's shit, you know? So it's, uh, so this, you have this really mature, uh, man in the Robin costume who is, who is doing detective work and, um, and, and is, and has that determination of like, you know, the whole thing, even at one point, like where she's like talking about the, the, the dark Phoenix and he kind of half believes her, but he's like, you know what? we can get the terminator and i'm in for that and then you know they 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 go after the they end up going after the x-men of course and nobody's there except for professor x and there's a pretty good fight in there there's some really good fight scenes in there too but yeah i felt that he had the voices down but it definitely felt like the titans were guest starring in an x-men comic it really did Okay, so I'm glad it wasn't just me. I was wondering, coming at it from an X-Men fan's point of view, if I was just like, who put this peanut butter in my chocolate kind of thing? But Because it, it really does feel like an X-Men comic to me. Because, I mean, if you look at, like, Storm, she's dead on. Of course, you know, it's it's Claremont, so, of course, her claustrophobia comes up. You know, Cyclops obsessing about Jean, of course. Wolverine talking back to Professor X, calling him Charlie, calling him Chuck. You know, Kitty and Colossus, but whatever. Um, it, all of that felt dead on. Now, I have some questions for you about some of the Titans' uh, representation. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Uh, and one scene, Cyborg is swinging across the city like Spider-Man. Is that a normal No, and that was a little bit weird to me. He doesn't tend to he, – he can jump and leap, and there are plenty of panels where he is, like, kind of leaping across the city, almost like Golden Age Superman type of stuff. Um, I don't think I've – I mean, he may have used it before, but it, it's definitely a – Batman Spider-Man esque pose, especially that second panel where he's in the background and it's almost like Spidey. Um, so that's a little out yeah. of character. Um, I assumed it wasn't necessarily a rope, more like a, a yeah, yeah. I think it's, it looks like it's attached like to his uh, yep. his hip on the thing. But yeah, that's not something that I don't think I'm trying. I mean, somebody could probably correct me and say no. He actually does that in panel five, panel issue for whatever. It's like okay, but I, it's not something that I'm used to seeing seeing from him. And then Changeling, like I remember during the Demon Seed era of Titans when he finally is able to transform into something other than animals. So it kind of threw me here. When Changeling transforms into the Phoenix shape so easily, um, I don't, I, and then Lockheed, um, and then the, the physical mass that it took for him to become Lockheed. I mean, is that outside of Changeling's realm at this point? I thought he was um, lions, tigers, and bears. Well, and the Phoenix makes sense because he says well, it's a bird, so I guess that there's a one for one there. In the, it's a bird I know, made but, of flames. But you see, he is creating himself into a bird. Um, I will say that in the storyline that just ended, he um, transforms himself into a Gordanian, which is one of the aliens that had captured um, Starfire in the same way that he does that with a parademon here. You know, he and he he just it's the oh, it's to to a point. It's almost the exact same thing. Um, except here, there, here, Darkseid's like, uh, since one of my parademons, Emerald Green. Right. And even 
waited a while to say it. It's like Darkseid. I think Darkseid yeah. knew the whole time, and he just yeah. waited for the uh, right it, opportunity. In the other one, somebody. he successfully looks because the Gordanians are that shade of green, and so he successfully pulls it off. But uh, when they ask, he's like, I'm bringing these people from the prison planet. And they're like, yeah, the prison planet blew up months ago. You're a spy. So he blows his cover in a different way. But um, – but yeah, so he is, he has shown that he is capable of transforming into something more than just funny animals or stuff. It takes him a lot more effort, though. Expense, they do mention that. They say it yes. causes him a lot of pain to turn yes, into Yes, it expends a lot yeah. of energy. Okay. And then, as you remember, when they get into the, uh, the demon era, the, the dark raven era, the raven dressed in the, the raven as Madeline Pryor cosplay era, basically. Yeah, less, less than, than that. that, man. She had a couple of strings of, he, of like dental floss. He's transforming wearing. into horrific things, and apparently, like I don't know, maybe he's stronger, or, or whatever. But yeah, but 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 yeah. So he is capable of it, and he's shown it a couple of times. But you know, okay. yeah. Here, here, the dragon. I thought that was that's a cool little effect too. The you know the idea that um that the two of them that that the two of them come up with it, and he transforms into the giant dragon that she's been using. It's a it's it's a pretty cool idea, right? Uh, one uh, thing I, I'm in Changeling's corner when Donna Troy shows up he says va va boom yeah, alright I'm with you buddy and then uh, I did enjoy actually quite a bit the you said the goody goody two shoes are however you said it the yeah. law abiding Robin uh, when they break into the X-Mansion and everyone's like looking around and Robin basically just tears his own team apart for saying we are breaking and entering you know we are assault and battery we are breaking the law people we do not have any authority as the Titans to do this and I really like that. I'm like, okay, there we go. Yeah, that, that yeah. Works and it's for funny me. because, like I said, about a year later, he's doing the same thing with Adrian Chase in the storyline where he is breaking the law and he's asking the Titans to come with us. So it's kind of funny that if this is in continuity, it, it actually shows character development <laughs> inadvertently. Right. Um, right. Yeah. The the the. But of course, Donna Troy's um on, the the moment is spoiled because she says. It never fails. Terry Long and I go out for a long overdue night in the town and the alarm rings. It isn't fair. Donna, it's perfectly fair. They were saving you. They were trying really hard right, to save you Right, that's why I think it's okay, yeah. Terry Long. <laughs> yeah. She specifically kept them away from Terry, yeah. so that was a good um, thing. But yeah, so it's uh, – yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, – yeah, because like you were saying, you know, it, in your mind, the X-Men were, were, were spot on. Who do you have in a fight, Wolverine or, or Deathstroke? Okay, so that that was really exciting to see them yeah. together. Like I, I shouldn't have, as a fanboy, I sh I should have been over this phase of my life, you know. <laughs> but like seeing those two fight, I got really excited. <laughs> and, and even though I read this comic like three times, getting ready for this episode, I got excited yeah. each time. So apparently, I care, uh, which is funny to me. So I, you know. In my mind, it's like, okay, this is a pretty even fight. I could go either way. I want X I want Wolverine to win because he's the good guy. I want Wolverine to win because I'm an X-Men guy. Uh, but on the other side, I put a lot of money into that Deathstroke series in the 90s. Me too. You know, and even some of the new 52 ones. I love me some Deathstroke. So at the end of the day, I could go for either one of them. But really, I, I think the real winner in that fight is when, out of the blue, uh, they both get ambushed by Ravok the Ravager. Um, that's that's going to be the real winner right there, Ravok the Ravager. Yeah, let, we'll get to Ravok the Ravager, the the red-shirted um, parademon leader. But I do want to point out that the two of the best Wolverine Deathstroke panels are like where he punches, Deathstroke punches, and, and 
he's like, I missed. And then Logan goes, yeah, too bad I didn't, and just knocks him on his ass. It's such a great two-panel sequence. Because this is the other thing, like, um, this isn't a miniseries, it's a one-shot, so Simonson and Claremont don't have a lot of real estate in which to do, like, fights between individual heroes. You know, had this mm-hmm. been a Wolverine versus Deathstroke comic, it would have been a lot longer. So the Wolverine Deathstroke fights, we just get these little tastes of them, and it's like it it's great though, because it does leave you wanting something else out of it. You're like, Oh, I want more of this. But you know, they they, they cram a lot into like you know, into these uh into these panels. Yeah. Ravik the Ravager, this <laughs> I mean, granted, he is just he is one of Darkseid's lieutenants so to speak so he's a little bit higher up than the average rank and file parademon but come on like <laughs> comic relief what what do, you, what do you make of a character like this so when i was rereading this uh the other night for the first time i got to the ravik the ravager part i'm like okay i gotta figure this out so i actually googled the character uh-huh. right then and there to see all right i'm sitting here going okay we got dark side dc We've got Deathstroke, DC. We've got Dark Phoenix, mm-hmm. Marvel. I'm like, okay, this must be a Marvel guy that I just don't know. You know, I'm thinking that because there's a balance or something. And no, he was created for this story and he dies <laughs> in the story. So I, you, you've kind of hinted at it before about the villains. I mean, it, the villain side of it really is unbalanced mm-hmm. because it really is Dark Side and Deathstroke's story. Even though uh, the, the specter of uh, Dark Phoenix hangs over the whole thing. She doesn't really show up till like the last, I don't know, quarter of the book. Yeah. Uh, maybe even the last third of the book. But so she, even though it's about her, she's not really in it till the end. So it's really the villains are primarily DC mm-hmm. villains. Yeah, which is interesting. You know, just thinking about that, that's really, really interesting. And um, they have a plausible enough way to get Deathstroke involved with Darkseid and the Darkseid hired him. You know, we Deathstroke being a mercenary doesn't necessarily have a mission, or so to speak. Um, you know that, or like have a take over the world type of mission the way that Darkseid does. He's just a hired hand, so that tracks with me. But yeah, you're right. I'm totally calling you out on that. No way. Why the hell would Darkseid hire an Earthling? That makes no sense. He would have got Kanto or. Uh, uh, what's his uncle's name? Calabac. Figure I'm blanking. Steppenwolf. Yeah. Steppenwolf, or his son Kid Cal. Okay. He would have just got one of those guys. There's no way he would have hired an Earthling for this job. But it within the story, story works. So yes, you are right because because we've seen we've seen other stories where he's got agents on Earth doing all sorts of all sorts of crazy things. Um, yeah, you're right. And actually, there's one of the questions I had was why go with. I mean, I know Dark Phoenix was a draw because, like you said, it was something that it was something that hung, hung over the X-Men's heads, especially during this era when it wasn't that long ago. This was issue 163 was on the stands. That means it's about 30. It's only been a couple of years since 137. Right. And in two years in comic book fan time is like a blink you know we're just coming to the realization that infinite crisis was 15 years ago (laughs) 16 years ago we're like wait a second i really remember buying that issue so you know two year two or three years of a comic fan's lifetime is is nothing so it seemed dark phoenix did feel like it seemed like it happened yesterday but at the same time if you're gonna do a dark phoenix storyline you have to have somebody on the level dark side to bring her out because because you have to come up with, with a reason for her to come back, right? Because she's been dead. Wouldn't 
Wouldn't Trigon have made more sense? Trigon made him even more sense. My only guess is that they kept him off the table at the request of, like, DC. Or or Claremont mm-hmm. didn't think that was going to work. But I, I, there had to be a plausible reason as to why um, why Trigon, aside from the fact that he just thought it would be really cool to use Darkseid. <laughs> Well, it could have been Simonson yeah. too. Going, yeah, yeah, to yeah. Um, so, so with that, the other thing is like, and this happens a lot when, especially in the second um, Trigon storyline, it's one of those cases where a couple of the heroes are actually directly combating the big bad villain, and the rest of the heroes are running interference. You know, um, so you have Raven and. Professor X teaming up to do these sort of attack her with beams of psychic love thing um, to to hurt Phoenix. I do yeah, that uh, very similar to what they've done. And then um, then everybody else is like Gar and Kitty are messing up the machinery that Darkseid is doing because Darkseid likes to monologue about what exactly he's going to do. <laughs> but now I've only read comics involving Darkseid that are like things like legends appearances in like Superman, Wonder Woman crisis, like those sorts of things have never really read the Kirby stuff. So I don't know how much that's true to his character, but he does strike me as the type of person and I've read Legion of superheroes, but um, he does strike me as the type of villain who would, who is so arrogant that he's going to get away with his plan. Cause he's so powerful that he would monologue about what his plan is. Um, yeah. Tracks. So, tracks. but they, so they, they're taking care of the parademons. They're fighting Deathstroke. Like they're fighting all around the battle. And the other two, is that a positive or a negative? Would this story have benefited from, say, Magneto? Uh, I don't even know if Magneto was a villain at this point, if he was a hero or villain or not. But like Magneto. Okay, so Magneto and the Terminator terming up, or maybe the Brotherhood of Evil, the Brotherhood of Evil mutants. You know, like people on the level because like in the net the second one would have been the hellfire club and brother blood that would have worked really really well they're both brother blood's basically this cult leader but he's got like a paramilitary organization so think of um jim jones crossed with cobra commander and um you have the hellfire club and they have all their foot soldiers and stuff so it would have been a really you know the villains would have been on the level um, would this have benefited from, say, a different set of villains? Um, you know, I mean, it's really good with the way it is. But, like, you know, should they have gone with, say, the Brotherhood of Evil and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants? They would have been interesting. Um, the I think the two brotherhoods are probably the smartest pairing. Uh, Magneto would have been great. Magneto and uh, Deathstroke would have mm. also worked really well. I, I, I actually am not a fan of the Hellfire Club because I feel like – the whole reason they did work was again because of the sure. Dark Phoenix story. It just feels like it all just goes back. Now I know they did a lot more with them over the years, but it just always seems mm-hmm. to go back to Dark Phoenix. Uh, so I think the the Brotherhoods would have worked. The Magneto Terminator story would have worked. The the thing here is though, if you're going to bring Simonson to do this massive of a story, uh, it's it's almost like okay, sure, I would have loved to see those other stories, but if you told if you showed me the art in this. Versus what I would have got with Magneto, I'd have been like, oh no, give me, give me Source Wall, give me Parademons, give me Dark Side, give me Dark Phoenix. Yeah. That's what I want to see is the explosions on the page. So those all would have been good stories from a writing perspective, but I think the art really wins by having Dark Side and, and uh, yeah, Dark you're Phoenix. right because it's because you know Simonson. Oh, I did. I didn't even catch the Dark Connection. Ah. They're both Dark names. 
<laughs> Simonson does, of course, can do street level, but at the same time, yeah, the epic stuff is just his his playground. And you know, this was he starts on Thor what in eighty four or so, eighty four, eighty five. He's on Thor, so um, so he 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 goes from here to doing this sort of you know, and he was doing Star Wars, so you know, the the big huge scope of things. Let me let me address another point you made. Yeah. I forgot to come back to. Um, and I did, I'm glad you brought up the whole thing about Raven and Professor X kind of saved the day there when they, they do the psychic blast. Because I didn't pick up on this till the third time I read it uh, this week, was that literally the superhero teams have zero impact on the story whatsoever uh, until that moment where Professor X and Raven blast Phoenix. If they hadn't even been in the comic, every event would have unfolded pretty much the same way. Up until that point, they have zero impact on the story until that moment. So you could call that a failing in that they didn't really accomplish anything. I mean, they blew up that and we'll talk more about that energy collector in, in New Mexico, but they did blow that up. But who cares? It didn't really change mm-hmm. the story. It was just for that beat. But ultimately, again, so uh, you could say the story had that failing, but kind of like who cares it was pretty to look at the fights were fun it was very adventurous i felt like i was seeing the characters in action i felt like i saw them doing things even if ultimately they weren't affecting the story it felt a little bit like raiders of lost ark for a little while where you that story you hear yeah. was like, you know, your move uh indiana jones from the story it still unfolds the same way for a while there i felt like it was the same kind of deal but um anyway so that, that i i don't call it a failing but it is an observation that they didn't really they're get back to playing it. catch up for a lot of the story so the the mm-hmm. the x-men are vital to the story because dark side steals the psychic energies from them in the dark in the mansion and blah 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 um but when when they get captured and the titans get captured like from that point on yeah they're inconsequential like they could have been the story because they're they're kind of they're they are starting out. Darkseid is like six steps ahead, so they're 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 spending right. most of the story catching up to where he is. And thankfully, when they catch up, they do have that impact on on what's gonna um, on what's gonna happen here and such. But we get a couple of and this was um and and this was a really good beat on Claremont's part where you have two of the most powerful uh, Titans attacking Dark Phoenix. And Dark Phoenix, first of all, with Corey, is like, this is, is, is like, you idiot. The, your your star bolts are sun-powered. I consume stars. And Corey mm-hmm. should have thought of that, but she was so, like, she, she wasn't thinking. She's like, she would in she was shooting first and asking questions later, um, you know, because she's screaming about um, for vengeance, for justice. You know, I strike for the people of Dabari, evil one, for vengeance, for justice. You know, the, those little asparagus people that John Byrne drew on a whim, um, getting a lot of play there. Uh, <laughs> but um, but then Raven attacks her, and Raven's like in pain. She's like, I'm just as you're just as evil as I am because of the whole Trigon connection. So it, so I liked those little those little moments, those little beats because um, it. It, it shows the power of Dark Phoenix, but also like you know does does get right at the two characters character aspects of, of those Titans that is that is pretty spot on. I I also had my notes the the Raven and Phoenix comparison was really great uh, whether it be in the dream I mentioned earlier or yeah the, the, we could have been yeah. sisters all that uh, about Starfire though okay there there is a plot thing that sort of bothers me is 
uh, Raven just simply describes a dream uh-huh. to Starfire. Okay. If you've ever tried to describe a dream to somebody, it's damn near impossible. Okay. And for, for Starfire to be so damn sure that the Phoenix is coming to Earth to destroy everything simply because Raven had a dream and the description might have been kind of like, you know, the Phoenix. That's a story she might have heard somewhere. There's a lot of leaps in logic where Starfire is ready to just break into people's <laughs> houses and shoot people. Because Raven, you know, may have ate Doritos yeah. before she went to bed. Had a I, bad I will say that Raven's ability, I can no prize Raven's ability to remember her dream because she's a psychic empath. So so we'll okay, say that she fair. has those cognitive abilities to uh, to really accurately picture these things. Um, it's a really lucky shot that Gar forms into the right kind of bird for the dream we'll give it that but at the same time you kind of roll with it you have to suspend your disbelief because it's just we need to get the plot going well these people also fly and shoot laser beams and you know yeah yeah at some point you just have to accept that stuff didn't work yeah i also one thing i like is the um and this is something that i think they get really right with the with the x-men the differences between the x-men and the titans you know the titans have a very visible headquarters on the east river that giant building shaped like a t mm-hmm. and there's the when we first see cyborg swinging on webs he notices a skyscraper in midtown that's been trashed and he wonders why the x-men the titans have never um t- tussled with the x-men and i always got the impression especially in this era that the x men were known but like were would try would try to be as discreet as they possibly can as far as the general public was concerned because of the hatred of mutants and things like that you know so so the idea that they could exist in the same place but yet yet never really intersect is plausible you know we're also not up to the big era of the giant crossover either. So, but I, I, it's plausible well, enough that like you know they they they've only like the Titans have only been on the scene for so long at this point. So it's like you know we've never really run into them, or maybe they were not on their radar or whatever. It's just kind of a passing thought he has, and I thought that was a good way to introduce the fact that the two of them um, never really met before. I, I totally agree with that. It was there for that specific yeah. purpose. It, the, the, the failing of that, though, is that the X-Men through the 60s bumped into everybody True. in the Marvel Universe. Even though they were supposed to be keeping a low profile, they bumped into every hero team. So, I, And I did wonder what that specific building was, 57th Street, Madison. I don't know if that was something from one of the issues or maybe that's old Marvel's old headquarters because they, they moved offices recently. I don't know. Um, 57. Well, it says, 50, it says 57th Street and then it says Madison. I don't know. We don't. We don't need to dwell on it. There's, there's more interesting things to talk about. Um, there's a couple of office buildings on there. There's a Christian Dior store. Um, IBM North America's office is there, and on oh, on on East Fifty Seventh and Sixth is Trump Tower. <laughs> So, yeah, oh, no, I think it was just a mid. It might have been. I don't know where where Marvel's um, offices were at the time in. Uh, uh, in uh, in New York City, but it might have been a it might have been a, a Madison Avenue uh, reference to Marvel because DC I think was at that point either in, in, in either in or around like Rockefeller uh, Plaza. Uh, or they I had think six, they six, were six, uh, either they were they were 
either right it was either right before or right after they moved to 666 5th Avenue so um, and they would stay they would stay in that area pretty uh, for a pretty long time too because um, they were at 1325 Avenue of the Americas was the next address and that was very around there this is really fascinating I know and then they were at 1700 Broadway 1700 <laughs> Broadway was across from the Ed Sullivan Theater which is where Letterman used to tape in the late 90s and um, I used to work at the corner of Sixth and and uh, and Fifty Third, so I would take that subway station and I would make a deliberate route to pass the DC office building on a regular basis. And if you looked up, somebody had put the Invasion Earth to Aliens Drop Dead newspaper in their office window facing out to the street. So I always never forget that. Oh, that's that. actually yeah. really cool. So that was my that one, really the, cool. the closest I ever got to the DC Comics offices. Um, anyway, so yeah, so there, th- that, that was probably a reference to that. But yeah, they were, they were kind of, I, I, ex- I also like the fact that at one point Robin mentions, why don't we call the JLA and the Avengers? Mm-hmm. I don't know what the hell the Avengers were doing. The JLA was in the middle of like crisis on Earth Prime. So, so the idea that, so, so the good. idea that they were otherwise occupied, um, would be, would, would also be plausible or we can't get to them in time. We've got to handle this, that sort of, that sort of thing. I will say that I really like the fact that it was Claremont's idea basically, um, that they just put them on Earth. Like, they did not go... They didn't need to go Earth 1, Earth 2. They didn't need to have anything involving continuity or universes. They just went with the fact that the Titans are in New York City, the X-Men are up in Westchester, they exist in the same world, just go with it. And I think that just saved a lot of... A lot more exposition, or a lot of another layer of... It was it was stripping away that layer of... of complication from the story made the story really accessible. So because we didn't talk enough mm-hmm. about geography, I, I found it. Unne- Uncanny X-Men number 155 apparently takes place on the corner of Madison. Oh, wow. Seventh. So interesting. There it is. So looks like it's part of the, uh, early part of the okay. brood story. If yeah. I'm looking at that or Oh, maybe it's not brood. Maybe it's blood. Never mind. It's the court. Well, it's Shi'ar, Corsairs, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And the, yeah, I was anyway. hot, I, I'm a hot and cold on the Star Jammers issues. Um, sometimes they're good. Right, sometimes right. like I, I love I love the concept of it, but in execution, sometimes it's a the real, Titans yeah. are the same way. Whenever they go into space, I'm like, this is gorgeous to look at if George Perez is drawing it. And sometimes it's like some really good action, but. I like them in the streets, you know, we're fighting brother blood or like, you know, it's just, <laughs> it, it, it depends how much they're trying to tell a star dreamer story versus tell an X-Men story and versus how much Dave Cockrum's just trying to cram as much Legion of superhero <laughs> stuff as he can in there under, a, yeah, under disguise. Yeah. So really, yeah. you know what I find interesting too, not very typical for a Marvel driven team up, uh, with the exception of when the, um, Titans accidentally attack Professor X. These two teams don't fight before they team up. Well, it, it does start off with Starfire trying to yeah. attack. So they do attack the house. Uh, you know, the, the, yeah, they the go mansion. after him. So it it starts off with the oops, there's a misunderstanding before they team up. So it start it does follow the formula, but yeah, you don't get a big knockdown mm-hmm. drag out. Yeah, You're right. So which is fine. Like I said, there's a lot they have to get in here. So. I'd forgotten how much of a Republican Paul yeah. was back then. <laughs> There's a part where he's like, uh, so your teammate's a Russian? 
Like, it means it's just, you know, Claremont just barely hinted yeah. it in there. But it's like, oh, that's right. I forgot. And that's a call. And that's that callback to the, how much he hated. Um, I think there was an issue with Red Star. That's yeah. Red Star. Where, where he and Red Star were um, like Red Star teamed up or was something with his wife or whatever. It was like issue 18 or something. And, and he and Wally were at odds. So it was fairly recent. But yeah, I like that. I, I do love Wally's introduction to this where he just dismantles the engine of the car on the Jersey Turnpike. And it's right? just and just keeps going. I, it's just yeah, the little touches like that in this particular book. Um, so as a as a person who was not a who was not as familiar with the if you were you were the X-Men guy, I was the Titans guy. So for me, especially, this really is one of my first exposures to this era of the team. I even back then felt that within enough pages of the story, I knew who these characters were. So it was very accessible. Did you find it accessible for, you know, if you had not been uh, that familiar, would you have found it accessible? Yeah, no, I did. Because, again, I I hadn't really read much of the Titans. Again, general familiarity with them. You know, certainly I knew who Robin was, things like that. But, you know, for me, I, I and especially like the New Gods characters, which were probably the most niche characters mm-hmm. in this whole thing. You know, I, I had read Legends. I'd watched yeah. Super Friends. I didn't have much exposure to them. I still followed what was going on. Um, so, yeah, I th- I felt like the story really painted enough of the story, uh, enough of who everyone was for you. Now, I can't vouch for whether the X-Men were explained well enough because I, I walked in with too much knowledge there. But from the Titan side and the New God side and, Dar- and Deathstroke, absolutely. I felt like everything I needed was was there. Now, you don't get any backstory on Deathstroke, but you no. don't need it for the story. You just know he's completely yeah. a badass and he's a bad guy. And that yeah, works. I felt that you – know, I knew who Wolverine was, obviously – when I by the time I read this. I heard, I heard he's the bestie. bestie what he is. does? Wow, works it works if he can get the joke yeah. out, man. Wow. I yeah, and I I, I knew some of the dynamic without doing all of the um the particular characters, but within the by page like three, pages three, four, and five of the comic are our introduction to the X Men through both Danger Room training and then just kind of little peaceful moments where Storm's like creating a little rain cloud over her uh, her plant. Cyclops uses his eye beams to shoot all the you know pool and, and Kitty Pride is is being cute and cooking everything to everybody dinner. Um I felt that gave me enough to go on and then as the story went on I understood like, you know, who these characters were, at least on a basic enough level so that I could really appreciate them in the story. I, I will say that one of the things I would have liked to have seen now, granted, they didn't not they didn't necessarily have the space to do this, but I would have liked to have seen some more of these mingling scenes between the characters, some of the conversational mm-hmm. things. We get that really funny moment of of Corey kissing Peter. Uh, we have a very cute ship between Gar and Kitty, uh, you know, and uh, and and they are very cute couple it almost makes him likable because he is one of the things about um gar logan through the wolfman paris run is that he is an incredibly immature young teenager he's probably about 15 16 and he's way more immature than that and um he it grates on you after a while and 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 claremont put that in there the va 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 boom thing the comments toward wonder girl that was pretty on character for him well she calls him again yeah yeah because you know and 
but the whole the little thing with with him and Kitty, it's it's uh, it's like he he found somebody his own age, so he kind of stripped that away. Like you know, I think you know they're about within a year of each other, so they they kind of connect right there. And it's a very cute moment where she thinks like she's like, I wish I was home, and the the Mobius chair takes them home, and they come back, and they're like, we didn't do anything. <laughs> That's it's adorable. The, they're hugging on each other because they're both so scared. Is it's absolutely yeah. adorable. Yeah, and I had no knowledge aside from Dark Side because of superpowers. Because Dark Side was like a, I've always loved Dark Side. I think it's a badass looking villain, and um, especially in this in this iteration, the Kirby iteration, and then what you would see through the through the superpowers like that. I never had that toy. I that was like one of the action figures I wanted and never had. I knew him, but I didn't know any Metron or any of this other stuff. But I thought that, again, they didn't have to explain everything, but they explained enough for me to understand that this is something that Metron, like, you know, there's something about this that Darkseid's manipulating this guy in the beginning to get something he wants, like some sort of device that is going to help him do what he wants to do. And at the end, the whole thing with him going beyond the source wall or whatever, and him, that, that final shot of his giant face on the source wall... It's uh, it's mm-hmm. enough. Like I said, it's enough for me to like be invested, be invested in the story, and, and and it's gorgeous anyway. So you know, I'm not gonna complain. <laughs> so two follow-up points to that. First off, uh, Dark Side on the Source Wall. I I can't explain it other than I guess this comic made such an impression on me, uh, and I was more of a, a Marvel guy at that point. Like Dark Side on the Source Wall, I just accepted it as a continuity. <laughs> like. Even though clearly this story is completely out of continuity in my head, still to this day, uh, there's a scene where Darkseid's absorbed by the mm-hmm. by the Source Wall, and maybe maybe it does I don't happen. know. I'd have to read the stories. Story. Well, but I've read a lot of them. They all blur together after these many years. But it's just funny how like that is accepted to me as a legitimate Darkseid story and how they defeated him, which is bizarre. The other thing is Kitty and. Um, Logan are, are absolutely uh, specifically yeah. are I should say uh, are are absolutely adorable. They are. I mean, they just are. And I I did wonder, you know, as you were talking earlier about the placement of this story and how Terra is about to happen. I you don't. Is it possible that seeing this cute relationship and the development as as the script was coming together that it, Wolfman thought, huh, maybe I could do something with Gar? Or do you think he already had? Terra he has said and this is something i talked about with um with donovan tara was created to be the anti-kitty pride like the 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 x-men and the titans were getting a lot of comparison around this time and because they Mm -hmm. were both big selling books they were both teen books they had teenage or thereabouts superheroes there are a couple of characters who were a little older but you know they're very much they they match up as far as like two teens and there were a lot of sure. comparisons. Well, basically one of the reasons they created terror is because Kitty pride had been created a few years earlier and she was a hit character from what I understand. Like, you mm-hmm. know, she, she's in, you know, she's in quite a bit and she, I know Claremont seemed to have a real affection for her as a character. Cause when he years ago, I read that the end story he did with, it was like three miniseries and whatever. It was very verbose, but um, but she was like a central part, part to that and everything. Um, so she, but she was very popular. So what they did was they introduced Tara, who was basically the scrappy do, 
and um but she's very much a scrappy do and and she's she is this snot nosed punk kid who for the first um she she's introduced as a criminal but it seems like she's being blackmailed by these terrorists and because she's gar's age it's um he's you know he's he's kind of chasing after her like a puppy and she weasels her way into the group and so that's issue 26 27 28 30 at the end of issue 34 they reveal that she's a mole so he they always had her ending in mind she was always going to be the mole she was always going to die at the end and she was set up to be a complete opposite in terms of likability where kitty it actually worked better than they thought because people actually liked her or they, they really hoped that she would turn around. Like there were letters where they were like, Oh, I was really hoping that she's going to, you know, and, and it doesn't happen, <laughs> but yeah. So, so it's, it, he, he does okay. it in a way to kind of mess with, with that whole idea that they're like, this is an X-Men ripoff type of criticism thing that's going on. Um, so while Tara wasn't inspired by Kitty in this story, she was inspired yeah, by yeah, Kitty yeah, in the yeah, long run, at least. Yeah. Okay. So, so the idea that her, him, and Kitty would met, would meet up is just—it's almost like a coincidence, unless unless there was some conversation between Chris Claremont and Marv Wolfman about what Wolfman had planned. But I don't—I want to say that's probably unlikely. Um, yeah. But yeah. A couple other quick points I was going to make before we left the the whole thing about the mingling of characters. I mean, the first off, the teams just look mm-hmm. good together. And I don't, I don't know if that's a function of Simonson just makes everything look damn good or whether they legitimately do. But as I'm flipping through here, damn, the teams just look like the, there's scenes where the teams are all kind yeah. of intermixed. And like, I actually have to stop myself and look and go, okay, that's a Titan. That's an X-Men. That's a Titan. Cause they just look right. They look like they fit together. It, yeah. It is, um, it, 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 it and that, that's the strength of, of, I think just overall. You know they 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 slot in really really well, and you look at some of the the power like I, I'm I've got the page open right now where the two team where Cyclops and Robin are shaking hands, and and you see them all lined up and and there's like there's an equal power set among them. Yeah, it's like you know no one team seems to outmatch the other, and mm-hmm. so they they chose this really really well and uh, and and really played to that strength. And you're right, they it's there's like a natural organic aspect to this that that i really really enjoyed too you kind of get that with jla adventures when it eventually comes out there are some points where it does feel like just very in that massive battle it feels very like this works but that's like here's all this huge power we're all going to work together this is more personalities seem to to blend really really well that's why i wanted just a few more scenes of them just kind of getting along and socializing because the titans books are really good at that there's, there's, you know, the Titans. It's almost like a, a soap opera with action in it, and um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're right both. There. They're the the Titans. It's very nine hundred two one zero in a way. I <laughs> joked about how years ago when the Titans series started, I joked about how they they really missed their chance because um, the great way to do a Titan series would essentially have been like that Netflix show Glow. But with with them, it's it's oh, very okay. like they're very they're almost like very pop music in the way that the X Men are sort of like a a darker, more goth type of 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 feel to them in, in some parts and things like that. So, 
Um, you know, if I'm going, going with, with yeah, but yeah, they, they do match up really, really well and they fight really well together. And it's, it's great to see, you can see, understand how they were jealous, especially when you have like somebody as good a leader as Robin and, and, and for all of Cyclops's incessant whining over the course of, of the X-Men issues, especially, you know, um, around this time, he's still a very strong leader as a storm. So you, you have, you have those personalities who are very good at guiding everybody. The only other uh, comment I was going to have in the, in the realm of the combining of stuff is, you know, professor X spent some time riding around in Metron's chair mm-hmm. in the story. And I'm trying to remember my new God's history. If this is really the first instance of that, of someone other than Metron, using the chair in a big way because i mean that becomes a super obsession in mm-hmm. dc i mean there's this whole thing with batman riding around in the chair and there's other people riding around in the chair it just becomes a th- over and over and over and over and i was just wondering like I, this this could potentially be the first huh. instance of I this never never pegged that yeah so i could be wrong but i mean that's yeah. just my my memory um okay a couple of things that we we were uh, one thing you pointed out, and I hadn't—I don't think it really registered with me back in the day. And then I had to re- go find the scene was where Cyborg at one point uses the word "muty," which you're like, yeah, that's it, really it, bothering. It's me. very odd. I, I wonder if I would have to look and see if if uh, how deep Claremont went with the idea that people who were of minority communities, if they were using that slur toward mutants or something like that it's a it's a it's a whole yeah it's a can of worms you know to open up but it, well yeah what's well, yeah yeah slur word right it really is and if there's anyone on the titans team who's going to understand racism better than the others it's yeah. going to be him i mean most everyone else in the titans is white or near white maybe they're mm-hmm. orange or green whatever but cyborg's the one who really would understand this and the impact on people and for him to use a basically a racial slur i was just like yeah. whoa yeah what? so i'm kind of interesting as to like why why that yeah and i don't really have an explanation for it well, it's it, it's certainly a term that got used in the uh-huh. X-Men books, and this is written by Claremont, and it was used negatively. And it could have been he thought, all right, maybe he didn't feel comfortable putting in any other character's mouth because of the racial undertones Possibly. of it. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Possibly. I don't know. It definitely stood out. Like yeah, is it? Yeah, and I don't know how it seemed. It was used as a slur yet. Was it, it, it does seem to get used quite a bit, like it might have been casually thrown around. Which is not right either. I'm just trying to think of like, okay, why would he have to do that? Yeah. So I think it's it's just it's it's one of the few mistakes made in this book. It was probably not even necessary, you know. Right. I mean, they use they use the word yeah. mutant a lot. They're, they're, that's the only time they yeah. use that. Yeah. So anyway. um, then we we got to talk about the big thing. We got to talk about Jean the big Grace thing. orgasm. Um, yeah. The <laughs> specifically Chris Claremont's obsession with yes. Jean Grey's orgasm. So, so right. t- just to paint a picture just before we before we get to what we're so you can understand what we're talking about. So Darkseid sends his people to um, collect psychic energy from Phoenix in places where she had used her powers to a significant level. So it's um, Kennedy Airport. 
It's the Antarctic. It's somewhere in like Texas or something, various other places. And there are these energy readings that get picked up by like Cerebro or like the Titan's computer or whatever. And they start picking it up out in the uh, Butte in New Mexico where in the Dark Phoenix saga, Cyclops and Gene consummated their relationship. And that's what he that's what he how he phrases it, I believe. That, yeah, in, yeah. in here, in in this specific comic, yeah, yeah Claremont says where uh, Scott and Jean consummated yeah, now, their love. To be fair, if we're trying to think of a non-creepy, non-sexual way in which she used her powers, if I recall correctly, she was using her powers to cancel out his eye beams when he took his glasses off. And Correct. She wanted to look at him in the face. That was enough of an expenditure of energy. That okay, th- th- okay in, 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 in a sense. Right. But this is this is this, this, is, is, this topic, is your topic, so and it is really creepy. And I will point out the giant phallic device they are using to collect Jean Grey's energy from this butte, because not only is it huge and phallic, it bursts out of the panel. Yeah, it really it is. is, and then. <laughs> So, yes, yeah, Scott and Jean had sex there, supposedly for the first time ever, which I totally don't buy. They were teenagers living under the same roof. There's no way this was their first time. But anyway, um, so and, and later on, Darkseid even comments about the fact that that particular energy there is the residual emanations were particularly intense in that location. All they did was have sex. Okay, so, yes, uh, there's a long history of Claremont's obsession with the female orgasm. Uh, and by the way, if your kids are in the car and you're listening to this, I'm terribly sorry. Anyway, so uh, like during the whole Dark Phoenix saga, in the language he would use in the comic – and there's people have written – I don't know if it's papers, but bl- lots of blogs and mm-hmm. articles about this. The language he actually used in the Dark Phoenix saga it, 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 to describe stuff, it was clearly he was describing physical lust by Phoenix and, and, and desire and sexual energy and a lot of sexual symbolism. I mean, if you look at the whole thing of the mm-hmm. Hellfire Club, all the BDSM, you know, themed attire, yeah. all of that. Mastermind corrupting Phoenix was definitely portrayed as a seduction of its own. Um, so here yeah, you think about poor Cyclops, like, hey, guys, uh, why is that place in New Mexico so important? And Cyclops is probably like, uh, uh, no, no reason. We, we don't really need to discuss it. We just need to go there because it's important. Like, no, why, why this place? Why is it so important? I, I don't really want to talk about it, guys. It just, it, it just, she just used her powers there. Like, no, she, it's, I mean, if I was asked to talk about like every place I had sex in college and we had to go on a field trip with a bunch of people there, I'd be really uncomfortable. I mean, that's super awkward. Um, you know, also, by the way, just to also reinforce this thing with, uh, uh, Claremont's obsession with the female orgasm. If you, if you read X-Men, uh, Micronauts, um, issue number four, yeah, you shared that with me. And I was like, what the hell? It is very, I, I don't want to go and do much. You guys can Google it. It's very disturbing, but in there, Claremont has Professor X controlled by a bad guy and he's triggering an orgasm like in a 16 year old girl and it's all right there on the page. It is super yeah. messed up. Um, and so it, it leads me to think like, okay, does Claremont think the female orgasm is that mythical and powerful? Like, I mean, I'm a fan of it myself personally, but I, I, I am not like, I know it's real and I know that, uh, I'm not so obsessed with chasing. Like me, I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe he couldn't produce that. And so he thought it was mythical. I don't, I don't, I don't know. And I don't know. 
I don't know if it's this effort to write more maturely in a way that's like completely misguided. I, I, I try it because, because on the Titan side of things, this is something that Donovan and I got into a very um, long discussion about when we talked about the Judas contract um, oh, about yes, Terra and Deathstroke. <laughs> so on the Titan side of, and there was, and the that's the other thing. Take us take out the Titan. Just put aside the Terra and Deathstroke relationship, which is a statutory rate. You have and and Don and I got into the a discussion on the uh, the book, the other history of the DC universe, that really does talk about how really messed up it was and how she was pro- probably groomed by him and and you know, more or less you know uh, traffic. It's a lot. It's a lot more. Um, painted them a lot more insidious light than the, uh, than the chicken makeup smoking a cigarette on the side of the bed panel that you have in Titans 39. But take away all that and you have very adult relationships among those characters in that book because you have, um, there is a scene and it's, I believe it's an issue 26 or 28 of, of the Titans where, um, Dick and Corey obviously sleep together for the first time. Because the, he comes over to Corey's apartment. Donna is, um, she's like, you know, well, I've got an evening plan for, uh, with Terry. Don't wait up. <laughs> you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, excuse me. But, <clears throat> you know, so th- there's that. But, but, you know, then there's a scene where, um, later on, like about a page or half a page later, he's out on their balcony. Cause Donna and Corey live in this like luxe apartment. Cause Donna's got like, paradise island money and um and so they're out on this he's out on this balcony and he's got no shirt on and he's wearing like looks like pajama pants or something and then she comes out like basically in a bathrobe and it's like oh well they 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 did it you know and then later in in one of the issues of the baxter series um in the, the early issues of the baxter series they're in bed together and uh having been woken up by Raven's screams and you see the two of them, they were in bed together. Apparently that got a lot of letters. So, but like Wolfman, even Wolfman was obsessed with this idea of like, it wasn't the female orgasm in the way that Claremont was, but about like these characters, like all coupling up and having sex with one another and like the sexuality of these characters to the point where it was like, and, and you mentioned the, the BDSM stuff of the Hellfire Club and we get into uh, like Claremont later on with Madeline Pryor and the Goblin Queen era where it was, where right, it was slightly yeah. BDSM, it's slightly hair metal video vixen, right? And then <laughs> later on into the Titans, you have, um, well, Brother Blood has sex cult aspects to it as well. And then you have, like, of course, BDSM Raven in, in New Titans 100 and after that, which is not his favorite era of the book, but it was something that was created. So it's like, what's going through your heads, guys? Well, it's, it's like they're trying to force some more mature story title, mm-hmm. you know, storylines into a comic that is essentially targeted yeah. at kids. You know, it's, it's, it's not the appropriate place. I get it that a lot of your readership had stuck with the book into their yeah. older years and you want to service that more mature readership, but maybe it's yeah, not the right place. We're not know? having ratings on books yet. Like nowadays there are ratings on a lot of comic books self-imposed like you know t- like, like almost like the video game system t for teen etc cetera, etc cetera. um back then you didn't even get a suggested for mature readers label on um comics until a few years later 
but the Teen Titans and the X-Men, I think, were both skewing. You're right. They were skewing a little bit older, but they were still comic books, and kids were, you know, kids were um, were buying them. They might not have been buying them at the same rate that they were buying, like little kids buying, say, Spidey or Superman or something like that. You know, so I don't think your average five-year-old would have picked up a – picked this up. I was 11 years old yeah, buying but, X-Men. But 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 that's probably, that's the, right probably age, the right age, especially <laughs> in the eighties. I saw RoboCop in the theater. Shag. I was ten years old. <laughs> like parenting choices, that way to go. But you know, like we, we, you know, I was seeing R-rated movies when I was ten, eleven years old. They were action flicks. But at the same time, so like so some of that. But there was, you know, that some of that like weird sort of this is mature type of stuff was I had already been exposed to by the time I was 12, 13 and reading this for the first time. So it didn't register with me. I saw Revenge of the Nerds at age 12. I did not see it in the theater because I was seven. But at the same time, um, that was one of the first movies that my friends like managed to rent. I don't know how he ended up getting a copy of an uncensored copy of that. And I remember we watched that when his parents weren't home, (laughs) which, which uh, back then it was like, Oh, Hey, look, nudity on screen. Now you watch that movie and you're just like, Oh, this is a, this is a trash heap of like, there's so so many many things wrong with that movie. movie. Although the liquid heat and the jock straps bit, that is funny. Um, so, so, so the bottom line here is, they build a device to collect yeah. energy because Jean Grey had her yeah, workout and in there. And it's just – he's really on this kick. It's, now, it's if you read the comic, you're, you're probably going to miss it unless you're really looking for it. I guess that says a lot about me. But whatever. Uh, it just it's yeah, but it, And it's also – and I get that he's also trying to do like a tour of the greatest hits of the Dark Phoenix saga because they're all important moments. Like all of those places – if I if I sat down and went through the X-Men comics and went through those panels, they all correspond to major events in the whole Phoenix saga. So mm-hmm. fans of the title would totally get those illusions. But you're right. It, it doesn't sit very well when you start thinking about it. It's like you're really, really focused on that, that particular moment. Like Because you can focus on the fact that the two of them were in love with one another without going – to that really creepy level because they do it later on when she projects herself into Cyclops. And you could take the other side of it and say, no, they made love there for for the first time. Okay, that's fine. They made love there for the first time. Ultimately, though, what does that usually culminate in? You know, I mean, that's that's part of that process. They made love. What soft rock song from 1978 (laughs) accompanied that making of love? Anyway, but yeah, it's you. You are right. We're, we're making light of this, and and we're also slap happy because it's after midnight at this point. Uh, but 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 it is it is it is very very weird, and it is something that um, I'm glad that other bloggers and 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 other people have done papers and reviews of these things because I don't think it's something that registered with me when I was younger. Of the weirdness of, or and then also the, the you know, there's a whole other side conversation to have about the the, the hypersexualization of of girls and women in comics, like when we were younger, than in the ways that I didn't really get how appropriate or inappropriate some of it was when, when I was we thirteen. Younger, that implies it hasn't that implies it hasn't stopped. <laughs> it's gotten better, but it has. Oh no, stopped. have you flipped through previews lately? Um, <laughs> so. No, I <laughs> <laughs> um, but but yeah, so it's it's uh, 
Yes, again, and then the the I don't know if, if Simonson was going for a gag there with the with the giant thing because it's it's supposed to it, it's a device very similar to like one of the monitors to, tuning forks in uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it's also you know because oh, okay. like you know those giant things they put but it's and it's also it's very it's a very comic booky device as is the little thing that he straps all the X Men to to get their energies out of. It's a lot of like crazy tech that is overly complicated that probably has about as me- much memory as like, you know, my iPhone, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like several stories tall and I carry this phone in my pocket. Um, yeah. So, but I, I do. So just to kind of bring us back to the, to Jean gray, but in a, in a way that was her characterization, I always found it interesting, especially with the end of Dark Phoenix and then and then through this, how she is Dark Phoenix is a villain, but adding the Jean Grey into her makes her a tragic character in a way that like mm-hmm. a way that a villain like Darkseid is not. And Claremont's like opening these old wounds throughout this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I really thought that worked very well. Um, it could have been, it, it, it's a little, I don't know. I don't think it's, I, I didn't think it was very ham fisted. It could be very ham fisted in the, in the wrong hands. I thought he handled it very, very well in making it seem like, you know, there's an emotional cost to this whole battle because of the, uh, because of the fight, the fact that the fight is with Jean Grey. No, I think so. And, and as I mentioned, they spent the most of the issue building up to it. So you were already invested by the time she's manifested. Uh, and then I felt like it was interesting how they, the Dark Phoenix character made it very, very clear that she's the Dark Phoenix, not mm-hmm. Jean Grey, uh, at, at least until uh, once they blasted yeah. her with love. That kind of changed a bit. But up to that point, she kept saying, no, I'm not Jean Grey. I'm Dark Phoenix, as if to almost say that this is the Phoenix energy without the good side of Jean. Uh, being as the host. But then again, once they blast the love into her, then you get, it becomes more like Gene, certainly. Because it almost, it, there's almost an implication in the story that there's a spirit of Gene out there mm-hmm. somewhere that actually warns the group in advance going, uh oh, look out here, you know, bad things are coming. And then we get the evil version of Phoenix. So it almost seems like there's two sort of spirits out there representing. Yeah. Phoenix. And that's what Scott's like wondering at the end of the story. And it's never really resolved or answered, but I do kind of like that too. That, that it's, it's almost like you, you do ask yourself, you're like, was that Gene asking, wondering about the, like warning them from beyond the grave? Like, who knows? It, right, right. It's, and little do they know she's in uh, the bottom of a rocket at the bottom of the ocean or whatever. I have sleeping in a cocoon. Um, but yeah, but it's the, and that whole sequence again of the memories coming back and and Cyclops with the Phoenix thing on her and and just the way Simonson draws it and everybody and I like the fact that next to Cyclops with the Phoenix logo on him, you have a three panels yeah. of everybody just kind of they can't do anything except watch this happen, like they are so helpless, and finally he um. He whips off the the glasses and says Dark Side, and we get the red streak. And Dark Side, who has been temporarily blinded, by the way, by Corey Starbolt's great moment, um, is just standing there in that Dark Side way of like, "Yep, come and get me." It's it's a really great 
panel an image and then uh, you know and then and then she flies them out into space and stuff like that. So um, they, they it's almost like they survived this by the skin of their teeth. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's like all good cosmic stories where the humans are the ones battling. It comes down to love. I mean, it almost always seems to be, you know, when you're dealing with the ultimate energy bad guy and the humans are the only last chain of its chain, um, last stand, it's always their love that wins the day. And that's what happens here. Um, but it's, it's still yeah. great. It's, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a cop out, uh, because of everything they built about Gene and, and Scott in the story, it feels earned and uh, it works. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and like I said, we get some, we got a really great closing. We get that beautiful shot of, um, of dark side. And if you're reading this in trade, and this is in the, in the actual comic, as you know, um, and now a word or two from Kitty pride, Marvel comics mm-hmm. is power drawn by Walt Simonson and we're cute too, <laughs> which I just, right, I love, right. I love the, cause it's the credits page. There is a DC advertisement in the actual comic. It's just a very generic DC house ad advertising, like, um, some of the stuff that was coming out, you know, whatever. Um, but this is just, it's, I love this drawing. Um, <laughs> I have really nothing to say about just looking at it. Like this is just, it's funny. Um, and it's, it's very, it has that attitude that I associated with Marvel comics in the eighties. And it's Kitty yeah. that sells it. Like it did the Marvel is power by itself. And it's like, okay, whatever. But Kitty pride, we, we all had a crush on Kitty pride. I still, I like Kitty pride as a character. Uh, I really, really have always liked her character. Yeah. She's fantastic, whether as a kid mm-hmm. or as an adult, and the different choices she made in life. She's a great character. Yeah. So, all right. So, any last words on this before we uh, before we wrap things up? Um, you know, the, the the sad the sad thing about this is that it is not available by legitimate means in a digital format. Um, mainly because yeah. of the fact that I don't think Marvel and DC are particularly getting along at the moment. And uh, therefore, nobody, whoever's got, whoever, I would assume Marvel owns the rights to this at this point, um, would have the publishing rights, but DC has, would have to give permission to do it, and uh, that that's not happening. And I don't think any of these crossovers are available digitally, if I'm not mistaken. Which is, you know, there is the perfect middleman nowadays to make this happen, and yeah. it's comicsology, you know, because... They get, first of all, there's a charge mm-hmm. for it, right? It's not like it's or on DC, Marvel Unlimited yeah. or DC Unlimited. Right? <laughs> it's uh, it, you put it on a Comicsology, it's digital. They charge both sides, get some money. Comicsology's already shipping out money to both sides. It seems like the accounting makes sense. All of it, I, uh, it's just money on the table and stories that people yeah, something, do. something, something's gumming this up, and a part of it has probably has to do with the relationship with the two companies. It was published, as we said, in, in its original format. It was published in. Crossover Classics, the Marvel DC Collection Volume 1, which has a beautiful George Perez cover of uh, all of the heroes from all the stories coming at each other. Yeah, George's back, back cover of all the villains, etc. Um, and uh, it was also published in a special commemorative edition in 1996, probably around the time that uh, the Marvel vs. DC crossover came out. I um, had like a gold cover. I, I don't have it, but that might pop up in a, in cheap bins because I I don't think this is very. I don't know what this goes for on the back issue market to be honest because I bought it 20 years ago, so I don't even know. Um, but I would imagine maybe the reprint might only be a couple of bucks if that if you can find it. So 
it well is well worth, worth it, it if, well you, worth. if you can track it down because it's 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 almost like a hidden gem at this point because it's not something that is um like i said because it's not been reprinted as much as some of the others uh People, it's not that people forget that it exists, but it's not, you know, it's not as out front as some of the other, uh, the other big event comics of the eighties. Well, think about it. Anybody who's gotten into comics in the last 20 years, the last two decades, it hasn't yeah. been printed. Even, even the sixth printing of this trade I yeah. got was 2001. So again, if you've been come at it in the last 20 years, you might not even know it exists. So. Although anyone listening to this, is yeah, probably listen, they're probably all have it. And like, whatever, guys. But but it would be really really cool because it's a great story, um, really really fun comics, uh, beautifully drawn, and uh, so if you ever do come across this in any format, trade, reprint, original, and you can pick it up, um, I would certainly get your hands on a copy of it. All right. Absolutely. So thank you very much for coming on. Before I let you go, uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you can find me over at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We are uh, a collection of folks that work together to produce pop culture podcasts, uh, primarily on comics and uh, like television and movies, really. Comics is where our, our, I would say the majority of the shows are. Those are the ones I participate in, uh, such as uh, Aquaman and Firestorm, Fire and Water Podcast, uh, Who's Who, mm-hmm. where we cover the Who's Who com- Yay! We cover Who's Who. Uh, I do Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha podcast, where I cover the Given Dimenteus era. And we have a whole bunch of other ones, like on Digest and Treasuries. And then we, then we delve into television. We have uh, shows on MASH and Cheers and on movies like Superman and, and Citizen Kane and all kinds of stuff. And So anyway, uh, it's all under the banner of Fire and Water Podcast Network. So And thanks so much for having us, Tom, I, or having me. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. This has been a real blast. I was honored to be asked, and uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation and revisited yeah. Yeah, I really, really had fun, and um, I, I mean, I always love podcasting with you, and I really need to find more reasons to get you on the show and stuff like that because it's always, it's always <laughs> a fun time, um, and uh, maybe we'll even invite uh, certain other people that were mutual friends of ours on there. So. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's not uh, let's not go to too many. Sure. Anyway, so uh, I'm going to take a quick break, advertise a uh, fire and water show, and then when I get back, I will wrap things up. So stick around. Beginning in 2018, the Who's Who podcast enters the 1990s with our coverage of the Loose Leaf editions. Featuring Superman by Jerry Ordway. The Joker by Brian Bolland. Wonder Woman by George Perez. Sandman by Mike Dringenberg. Batman by Norm Brayfogle. The JLI by Adam Hughes. Eclipso by Bart Sears. The Legion of Superheroes by Keith Giffen. Dark Stars by Travis Charest. Lobo by Simon Bisley. Kent Shakespeare by Chris Sprouse? Who is that? Doomsday by Tom Grummet. Wait, are we covering these by issue or in alphabetical order? The Justice Society of America by Mike Paravec. The Forever People again? You are f***ing kidding me. Doom Patrol by Richard Case. <sighs> I'm so confused. And many more. 
the Who's Who podcast, going boldly into the 90s. A proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I guess. And that'll do it for this time around. I'll be covering any feedback any of you might have next episode, which is going to be a solo joint. I'm going to be talking about baseball cards and non-sports trading cards. And that includes, by the way, the live opening of Vintage Packs of Cards. So, because I'm nothing if not a cheap follower. Anyway, until then, leave comments and feedback. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.